Hello, and welcome to the Confident Sober Women podcast. I'm your guide, Shelby John. I'm the mother of three, wife to one, and sober since July 1st, 2002. As sober women, we have something huge in common. And when we share our lives and our stories with each other, we feel that sense of belonging and connection so we know we are no longer alone. In this podcast, you will hear real-life talk about building confidence and transforming your life beyond recovery. So come on, let's talk. Hey there, Sober Ladies, and today we are doing things a little bit different, and it's going to be a little bit longer than our usual episodes because I have a very special guest, Michelle Taylor, from Perfectly Imperfect Counseling. She's going to be sharing with us her expertise on intense trust in yourself. Michelle was a guest expert in the Sober Freedom Inner Circle, so you can find the entire training in there, but she has a lot to offer in a general way on this topic, and her story is pretty inspirational. So Michelle uses Gottman techniques with couples, learning the tools to have effective communication and repair. And with individuals, she focuses on Brene Brown's techniques of vulnerability, compassion, and shame-stopping. Michelle is a direct and goal-oriented therapist and also an avid traveler. She loves golf, sports, mowing the lawn, and staying active. And these days, Michelle runs perfectly imperfect counseling from her she-shed at home in Los Angeles or from her RV when they're traveling across the country with her two dogs and her partner. She loves online counseling because it's flexible and for her and also for her clients. So I turn you over to Michelle Taylor. I'm a therapist here in Long Beach, but I actually run an online group practice. So I see all of my, all of my clients online. I actually saw them all online before COVID um, mostly because I didn't want to drive in LA traffic. So um, it's been really convenient to, continue my work online. So a little bit about myself. I'm just going to give you my sober journey. I'm almost three years sober. And that's so crazy to think because I remember in my first 30 days thinking, you know, I was at some AA groups, um, looking at those who have been sober for 20, 30 years thinking there's no way, (laughs) there's no way even a year. And I got to a year and I thought no way there's gonna be two years. And here I am almost at three years and just taking it day to day. A lot of that has to do with um, the work that I have done with trusting myself. And I didn't really understand the concept when I first decided to get sober. And it really was a decision that I made. Um, So I'll just go a little bit into that because I think that's important here. I know everybody is on their own journey and we're here trying to be sober. And that's that's a difficult thing to do. So congratulations to everybody on their day to day. It's not an easy journey. So one reason that I became sober was because of my brother, who ironically, we decided to do an intervention for him. And I was kind of the forefront of this to get it going with my brother. He, he was using mostly pills and some alcohol. And this was three years ago. Alcohol had been in my life since I was 18. I grew up Mormon. And also with that, I realized that I was attracted to women at the time. And so Mormonism and that doesn't go along together well. A lot of my growing up had to do with internalized homophobia 
um, shame, guilt. So when I got introduced to alcohol, I was at a party, a volleyball party, and one of my friends got me to drink. And from there, I just, you know, used that as my coping tool for my internalized homophobia and shame and guilt and kind of went down, you know, normal 20-year-old hole, went to college, ASU, um, went down to Mexico a lot with my uncle and my cousins. They all live there. Lived in Spain for a while. So, you know, the culture there is drinking. So I've always been kind of a functioning drinker. You know, I, I maintained a job when I was 25. I started teaching um, at a high school, uh, private high school up in Monterey, California. And the culture there was even drinking. You have a a rough day or a rough week and you go home and you have a nightcap or you go out with your friends and you kind of just talk about it. And I mean, at that job, it was a boarding school. So I was work hard, play hard. I worked really, really hard, but I also, on the, when I had time off, I would play hard. And I got in the culture of hanging out with people that that's all we would do is we would go to bars and we would hang out and we would drink and we would watch football and we'd drink. And we, after a day of work, we'd go home and we'd drink and get up the next day and go to work and thought nothing of that because I was functioning. I was working a lot and thought everything's fine. But what I realized is that I was, you know, looking back on it, I realized that I was kind of ashamed of my drinking when I would go home to see my family. They're still Mormon. And my brother was struggling for a long time with um, pills and stuff. And I always thought he was kind of the black sheep of the family because of that. I thought, you know, I had my stuff under control. I thought, I don't know. I just, I, it was, it was difficult. I didn't really realize I had a problem with alcohol. The time came when we decided to do an intervention. And ironically at that same time, right around that same time, three months before the intervention, I got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And when I got diagnosed with that, it actually came about because I couldn't, I, for three or four days, my toes started getting numb all the way up to my hips and I couldn't feel from my waist down. And that was really, really scary. And I was in the hospital. They got the numbness to go away after about two weeks. And it was kind of life altering to say, but the first time that I went to the doctor and they were trying to tell me, you know, what's the protocol for treating MS? You know, I, my first question to him was, can I still drink with this? And I just, I look back on that and I go, man, I was really in it. I, I couldn't think of life without drinking. And the doctor said, you know, you can have one or two drinks a week. And I thought, man, that's a tease. That was the first thought in my head, man, that's a tease. So <laughs> I ended up not drinking for maybe a week. And then I had my one drink and you know, after that one drink, I was like, well, I feel okay. My body's feeling okay. And after about two, two weeks, I would have two drinks and then I felt okay. So I thought, okay, I'll push it even more and I'd have three drinks. And then by the time January came around, I was, you know, that was September. By the time January came around here, I was back to my old drinking. And at that time, my family um, was really hurting for my brother. They called me because I was a therapist. They knew that I um, could figure out how to do an intervention for him. And so I called up an interventionist. This is the craziest part. I called up the interventionist and this was in tech. I'm in California. I called the guy in Texas. And as I'm calling him, I made my favorite drink, Jack and Diet Coke. 
or Jack and Diet Dr. Pepper with cherries. <laughs> that was my favorite drink. And I'm not kidding you. I had a big Dickie's cup full of it. Dickie's cup's pretty big. I called him with a drink in my hand and he's sitting there asking me questions about my family and my brother saying, you know, chances are that 98% of the time interventions are successful in getting them to go to rehab. And I'm sitting there going, okay, okay, okay. And he goes, well, what's the history of drinking in your family? And I said, well, my family doesn't really drink or do anything except for me and my brother. I drink and I'm sitting there drinking my drink. And he goes, well, what is your drinking usage like? And I said, well, you know, I have drinks here and there, um, but I'm functioning. I go to work and I've always had a handle on it. And he said, well, how much are you drinking? And I said, well, you know, and I was, I, I like to use humor. I said, you know, I, it's ironic. I just got diagnosed with MS and I asked my doctor if I could still drink and he said that I could have one to two drinks. And I was laughing on the phone with this interventionist saying, I thought that was such a tease that he would tell me that I could only have one or two drinks. And it was just silence on the phone. And he said, you know, I'm going to be pretty upfront with you and straight because you're a therapist and I think you could handle it. Have you kept, have you kept to the one to two drinks a week? And I said, well, I did at first, but you know, it's feeling okay now. And he goes, you know, here you are. A doctor is telling you, you shouldn't drink more than one to two drinks a week and you can't keep to it. And here you are calling about your brother and you're thinking that your brother should hold himself accountable for that. And man, that hit me hard because I love my brother so much. And I, I sat there and I, of course I took a drink of my drink cause I didn't know how to cope. And he was like, you know, I just, I just really think that you should think about how hard this is going to be for your brother. And it, that what you're asking of him is something that you can't even do yourself. So I got off that phone call and I went into my partner cinnamon with my drink. And I said, I think this guy just called me an alcoholic <laughs> and I laughed and I poured myself another drink. And I just remember sitting there, you know, wow. I, I don't even think I knew what to do with that. Cause it took me a week to get that intervention going and get everybody there. And I still drank in that week, but it hit me so hard that, Finally, about five days into it before the intervention, I just decided, you know, I'm not going to drink this week while we do the intervention. I'm just going to not do it. That's not fair. It's, it's not fair to my brother that he has to do something difficult and I'm not doing something difficult. So it just started, my sobriety started with just deciding not to drink for a week. And it wasn't like some last celebration where my last drink was my last drink. It was just one night I decided, you know, tomorrow I'm not going to drink because I want to try to be there for my brother. And then the next night, um, same thing. I can't drink because I don't want to do this for my brother. And I did that for about a week. And after the intervention, which unfortunately the intervention did not go well, he was the 2% where he decided he did not want to go. And it really ruined all of our relationship with him. He was so mad and angry and upset that we had called this intervention on him. And we didn't know where he went. It was really sad. He, he just left and we didn't see him for months. It was probably the most heartbreaking emotional time for our family and for me. But in, in that, I had to, in that intervention, write a letter to him saying what I missed about him, what I hoped that, you know, he would go to, th go to rehab. And in writing that, I had to come to terms with 
the fact and be accountable to the fact that I had a problem too and that I needed to get help. And so what, what was an inter- intervention for him turned into me being honest about my own drinking and myself. And actually it was more of an intervention for me um, because my, I, no longer was I hiding my drinking to my family. It was out in the open. I told them that, you know, in the intervention, I told my brother, Hey, let's go, let's do this together. I'll go to, I'll go to AA meetings. I'll do everything with you, you know? And in saying that during the intervention, I decided to hold myself accountable to that because I did not want to let my brother down. I did not want to say something and then not follow through. I think that was a big moment that it's not something that at the time I thought would be, I would be three years later still sober. But at the time I was like, I'm going to do it for my brother. That was my strong why. And when I talk with clients, I always talk about with them, make sure that you have your strong why. And at that time, my strong why was not me because I didn't do it for myself. It was not you know, my health, my multiple sclerosis wasn't enough. My family in general wasn't enough because I was hiding it from them. But it really was, I wanted to be accountable to my brother. I felt truly that my why was, if I couldn't do it, then my brother would never do it. And I needed to model that for him. So everybody has their, their why, and that was mine at the, at the start. Once he decided not to go, I just, day to day, it was just, more of like a competitive thing. I just couldn't back back out on my word. I told my family that I had a problem at that time and I wanted to stand up for my brother and do it. And I just, you know, day to day, those first 30 days was just that. Just, I don't, I cannot drink because I do not want to let my brother down. And after those first 30 days, and I went to AA meetings um, up in Ojai because I was living up there at the time. They have a very strong AA program. Very, I was probably half the age of most of the people there, but um, they were very supportive, very awesome. There was a women's group that I went to. Hearing their stories was really great. They they helped me through those first ninety days, which those are the hardest. Um, and the cravings back then, you know, were bad. And every day, I would tell myself, um, "Hey, you know, just get through this day, and tomorrow morning you can get up and get as you know shit faced as you want." excuse my language. <laughs> I would just say, you know, I just get to get as shit faced as I could get tomorrow. But today, can you just go today? And I'm super competitive. And I would tell myself that and I would do it. And I'd wake up in the morning feeling so good without a hangover and be like, Oh, I'm pretty productive today. Let's see if I could do it again. Can you just go today? And then tomorrow, um, you could do whatever you want. You could drink as much as you want. And you know, for the first 90 days, that really worked. After the first 90 days, the cravings weren't as bad. You know, I'd see ads on TV or I'd watch it on, you know, watch drinking on TV. It's so, it's so dominant everywhere in our culture. And I remember just thinking, God, I, we really have no chance. Like, how could we not be drinkers in this culture? It's just so difficult. My friends were upset that I stopped drinking for sure. They, you know, if you admit that you have a problem and you're functional, um, then they have to, and they didn't like that. So um, it's always been an uncomfortable, <laughs> every time I, I still see them, I still go to their parties and I'm able to not drink, but, and I, I, I basically proactively bring my own stuff. So I'll bring my Diet Dr. Pepper still, that's my, my vice or...
welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. I'll bring a a seltzer water that I really like. And the first couple of months, they would offer me some drinks and I would have to turn them down and say, remember, I'm not drinking. And they were like, oh yeah, oh man, I can't believe you're not drinking anymore. Yeah, yeah, I know it sucks, but but now they know I'm not drinking anymore and it's not even a conversation. But it definitely does make them uncomfortable to have to drink around me. Um, Not have to drink around me. They do drink around me. It's very uncomfortable for them. Because I, I think it is just a representation of if I have to stop or if I stopped, then that means I had a problem and therefore they have to look in the mirror to themselves and I don't think that people want to do that. I think it's uncomfortable for them. But, you know, everybody, every journey is their journey. And a happy ending, three months after we did the intervention with my brother, he actually texted my dad um, three months later, said, I'm ready to go. And he actually, you know, went and he told us after he got out that he was drunk when he sent that text to my dad. And he was, you know, he, I think he blew a 1.4 when he got to rehab and said, you know, I just, it took him a while. He didn't want to be forced to do something he wasn't wanting to do when he was ready, but he realized that alcohol was definitely something that was um, difficult for him to get to get rid of. He, he could get rid of the pills. He could get rid of weed, but alcohol definitely was the hardest thing for him to stop. And he said at the worst time of his drinking, he was drinking a liter, a handle of vodka a day. You know, I just think about that and, you know, he's never really been able to maintain a job and the shame that he must've felt, you know, not being able to be functional just probably added to his drinking. So I just, I have, my heart goes out to him. So he was sober for a while. Unfortunately he's relapsed and he's back to drinking again, but he's holding, he's maintaining a job and a girlfriend and stuff like that. So who knows, maybe he's gotten a little more under control, but knowing what I know about sobriety, he's still struggling. So it's, you know, we could only do what we can do. We set, we hold boundaries and um, maintain the line that he can't cross. Um, which is what I was going to bring up today. And we're at 20 minutes. I just wanted to kind of take a break before we jump into the good stuff about intensely trusting um, now that we've gone through where I came from sobriety-wise. So um, I guess we'll just go right in. Um, So I work with a lot of clients who are um, anxious, depressed, um, a lot of couples work. And um, the root of what I see that most people struggle with is self-esteem and confidence. The way that I have kind of linked this to sobriety is I look back on the days where I was drinking and I, I see pictures of myself and I see pictures of myself now. I've lost 45 pounds since I've stopped drinking and it wasn't even that difficult. I just stopped drinking and I'd started losing weight. And, um, 
I feel better in my body. I work out now. I wake up early. I have a good routine every day. And before it was just like every day I would wake up kind of going, just go to work and we'll see what happens. There was never any planning. I, I even told my partner that we've been together for 11 years in the first seven years I was drinking. There was never any planning. She would say, you know, where do you want to go this year? What do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't want to think. I just like to just spontane go spontaneously. I never would make a plan. But I look back on those days and I look at my pictures and I'm like, you know, I, I just see a person who was just so lost and had low self-esteem and questioning herself. You know, my family and I, we didn't, we didn't talk for many years because of my sexuality. They didn't agree with it. So it just kind of was a rearing, it was rearing uh, shame and guilt and sadness. So um, I look at that and I've done my own therapy and my own work now. And I see that there was just lack of confidence, lack of self-esteem. If I'd asked myself back then, I would have said I would have had lots of self-esteem. I was a fun partier, but I look back on it now and what I know of self-esteem is not what I had. And I also did not trust myself. And I have done a lot of work with trust, not only with just learning about what trust is, but also with people that I know, it's hard for me to trust. And the only thing really, if I could think back to my life from 18 to when I stopped drinking, even including my partner, the thing that I could trust the most was Jack Daniels, which was my number one most favorite drink. That is the one thing I could trust the most. It was always there for me. It was my best friend. No matter how bad my day went, there it was. No matter how great my day went, there it was. That was the thing I could trust the most. And I look back on that and that is like really sad to me uh, because now I've done so much work on trust with people and um, relationships and myself, which is what we're going to get into today. And I realized that I have so much more um, joy and peace because I've learned to trust something besides a bottle. And um, at that the, the root of it is intense trust in myself. Um, so what I want to give you guys today is Brene Brown. Um, she does a lot of work. If you haven't heard of her, she's awesome. She's a therapist. Well, she's a social worker, but she became a researcher. Um, she's actually from Houston. I'm from Dallas originally. She's from Houston. So I really enjoy her just because she reminds me of home. Um, but she does a lot of work on vulnerability and shame. She became famous for that. But most, most recently, she's done a lot of work on trust. And I loved when she came out with it because she broke down trust into parts, the anatomy of trust. Usually when you think of trust, you think of I trust you or I don't trust you. It's very black and white. And if I look back on my own self, uh, you know, did I trust myself back then? No. Mm -mm. If it was just so black and white, absolutely. I did not trust myself. I trusted that I would drink. Sure. But other than that, anything else in my life, I did not trust. I was um, kind of spur of the moment, on the whim, do what I need to do. I guess I could trust that about myself, but I couldn't trust myself to um, stick to a plan to have goals, to do them. Mm -mm. It was just by the day, by my feelings, by my emotions every day. So what Brene Brown has done is she has come up with um, 
an acronym called BRAVING, B-R-A-V-I-N-G. And BRAVING is a great tool to use to break down the anatomy of what trust is. Um, and I use this with my clients a lot because a big, huge part of confidence and self-esteem is trust. You have to learn to trust yourself. And when you're talking about sobriety, if I didn't have trust in myself, I would have relapsed for sure. But I have built little, little drops. You think of trust as, as a bucket and you're putting drops of trust in there every day. And my bucket of trust has gotten so full within me that I know I can trust now in myself that I can maintain my sobriety. In the first 30 days, in the first 90 days, no way. My trust was not there. My bucket was empty of trust. Um, but over the course of time, I've built enough in the braving acronym of trust that I can now look at myself and go, you know, I, you know, I don't know about 30 years from now because my trust bucket is not that full yet. But I could definitely see myself being sober for another month, two months, six months, year, mm, two years. Yeah, I think it's out there. Um, and I think the more you trust yourself, the further out you can look, the more hope you have in yourself. And um, so that's what I'm going to help you guys um, with today is understanding what does trust look like and how can you build it? How can you build your trust in yourself and in other people? Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. And if you want to hear the rest of her training, come on over to the Sober Freedom Inner Circle. The link will be in the show notes below. Also, if you want to get in touch with Michelle, you can find her contact information in the show notes as well. And a final thought, braving. That's boundaries, reliability, accountability, the vault, integrity, non-judgment, and generosity. This is the Anatomy of Trust. Brene Brown. See you next week. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Confident Sober Women. If you enjoyed this conversation, hit the subscribe button above so you won't miss any upcoming episodes. And hey, if you really loved it, leave me a review. You can learn more about the Sober Freedom Inner Circle membership at www.shelbyjohncoaching.com forward slash inner circle. See you next time.